Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. Our guest this month is Daniel Guyton, a playwright who hails from the Atlanta, Georgia area. Daniel is a prolific writer and has a list of productions and publications that is ridiculously impressive. He's written not just plays, but screenplays and poetry as well. I started chatting with Daniel by mentioning a few of the snippets from his reviews, which are listed on his website, danguyton.com, that's D-A-N-G-U-Y-T-O-N.com. And there are more than a few of those review snippets. The blurbs, <laughs> they're, they're a story in themselves. You have a plethora, a myriad plethora of quotes on your homepage. And I'm going to read a couple of these off. <laughs> sure. Because... <laughs> Um, the first one uh, that, that I, I ran across was Guyton brings tender, real moments to the stage. And uh, that's a wonderful kudo for any playwright. Right? Get a review like that. That's wonderful. Then I saw sweetness spiced with gentle humor. And I thought, that works. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we get to the ones that I really like. Okay, I'm going to read a couple of these off. Sure. No one does wonderfully dark, disturbing, character-driven shows like Daniel Guyton. That really got my attention. Yeah, I, uh, I love reading yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. Then we get stuff like Twisted, Surreal, Cruel, and Hysterical, which lit me up perfectly because that's exactly <laughs> what I look for. Sure, sure. And then here's three more. It's like South Park on stage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Morally Repugnant, which I love. <laughs> my first review i ever received and they tore me apart really uh, i what, now try to what, wear it like a badge of honor but uh, what, but yeah you should what which play was that uh it's a play i wrote called i'm not gay and it's a, a satire on homophobia okay uh, however i i think the reviewer misunderstood the satire uh, <laughs> he accused me of making fun of uh catholics gays um Jews, a, a myriad of people, but I was trying to target specifically homophobes, but uh, but apparently the, the satire missed its target, apparently. Wow. Okay. It's yeah. as, as we all know, or many of us do know, we playwrights, that attempting satire is always a risky, risky business because yes. in this case, someone didn't get the joke. Yeah, yeah, he did not get the joke, and uh, he, he he pretty much tore me apart as my first ever review. And, um, you know, it, it, it cut. It cut deep. But uh, but after I gave it some time and after I got some other reviews more positive in other places, uh, I was able to go back and, and, like I said, use that as a badge of honor. Um, so, you know, the best playwrights and the best uh, actors have always been torn apart at some point in their careers. So I, I take it as a... Uh, as an honorary thing. <laughs> well, you've, you've got to weather those. It, it, it comes with the territory. So, okay, this guy didn't like it. I'm not gay. Yeah. What's been the subsequent uh, reviews for that play? Has it been produced again? And what was the reception like for those? Yes. Uh, actually, funny enough, uh, at, at the very beginning of my career, it was my most successful play. It was produced uh, in Iceland. It was translated into Icelandic. It ran for four months over there. Uh, which apparently is, uh, you know, very long in Iceland. Uh, most shows ran, last for about a month or so. So I ran for four months. Uh, I got um, a very positive response from there. They uh, they interviewed the actors on the Icelandic version of MTV. 
uh, I didn't understand a word of the interview, but I got to hear my name uh, in badly pronounced Icelandic. So it was, it was really fun. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. Uh, so it was a great experience. And I thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to bring this to New York? So I, I self-produced it uh, in New York. And um, it, it, it got a good reception from the audience, I felt. Uh, but the reviewer uh, was unhappy with it. So um, unfortunately, there was only the one review of that play in, um, in American uh, journal. So it was off, off online.com that reviewed that. Okay. So writing something like that, um, and I'm, I'm going to go backwards through my questions here a little bit because this is, this is the way it's been taking me sure. normally. Well, I'm not going to say normally cause that's ridiculous, but why, <laughs> would, why would you choose to run with a subject? So potentially fraught with minefields you know it's uh, landmines in there i mean because that can easily as it did yeah all right turn somebody completely off but you went with a satire on homophobia which mm-hmm. you know even for a well-known worldwide well-known uh, gay playwright that would be taking a leap i think sure Sure, absolutely. Um, at the time I wrote it, uh, this was actually before Will and Grace. I wrote it. Uh, started writing it back in 1999, uh, and I remember seeing on TV um, every depiction I saw on TV was a stereotypical gay man. I, I never saw a, an actually well-rounded uh, gay character in and most of television and most of the movies. I remember the movie uh, The Rock with Sean Connery. There was a, a gay hairdresser, and, and he just sort of weeps in the middle. And he says, I just want to know if you're happy with your hair. And, and, and this didn't represent any uh, gay person I knew. I have several gay cousins and a lot of gay friends being in the theater industry. And um, so I, I thought it would be fun to make fun of the stereotype and to make fun of the people that try to pigeonhole, uh, like I said, my gay friends into this the stereotype. And so that's, uh, it's the play starts out with two men in an elevator. There's a, a gay man and a homophobe and the homophobe keeps trying to pigeonhole the gay man. And the gay man does not fit any of the pigeonhole packages that the, the homophobe believes he should fit into. And so there's a lot of comedy in that. Uh, and then as the play develops, of course, you get more and more, uh, farcical elements, um, that add into it. So, uh, for me, it just seemed like a, a, a rich, minefield of comedy but uh and 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 a lot of people that i I had readings of and and read it with me and they seem to appreciate the comedy but uh like i said this this one particular reviewer and and a few other people a few people weren't happy with it but but this one reviewer in particular was very very dissatisfied (laughs) with Mm, the sounds like it well well kudos to you for a writing it and b Putting the review up on your home page, um, <laughs> you know, I gotta own it. I, I just can't, uh, you know. I mean, they don't find it anyway. It's available. You can look it up online still to this day. So, mm. if anybody Google's me, they will find it. So, I might as well just own it. <laughs> you might as well. The the, <laughs> the snippet of reviews that I liked the best, however, mm-hmm. was right around that one, and it's theater of the obnoxious. That was the same reviewer. Same, same reviewer. reviewer. Yes, he called me morally repugnant, and uh, later at the end, he, he capped it with, uh, if, if, uh, if I would put this play in any uh, category, I would call it a category of its own, the theater of the obnoxious. I so, like that. Yeah, yeah. So again, I was like, you know what? Uh, I, I got my own category, so let's, let's own it. That's great. That's, that's the thing that great T-shirts are made, are made of. <laughs> um, 
Okay, as a playwright, you have been, according to your website, you have been performed over th- 300 productions. Yes, which, sir. Um, to me, is is a, a congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but it's also a little mind-boggling, too. Um, how many plays have you written? Uh, I would say, at this point, it's about 62. Okay. How many of them are full-length? How many of them are 10-minute four, four of them are full-length. The rest of them are either one X or 10 minutes. So, um, so one of the secrets to my success is a lot of them are 10 minutes, and 10 minutes tend to get produced a lot more often. Um, at various 10-minute competitions around the country. So uh, that, that is one of the, the number one secrets of my success is the fact that many of them are short and they can kind of be put into a, short, a night of short festivals uh, very easily. Do you enjoy writing short plays? I do, I do. Uh, there's something very satisfying about it. Uh, you're, you're still telling a full story. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people when they write short plays tend to fall into the skit or sketch writing Absolutely, uh, yeah. slump. Um, so being able to write a fully developed uh, story you know, with a character arc and everything in just 10 minutes uh, is a challenge. It's not easy, but uh, I, I feel like I've sort of, I don't want to say mastered it, but I feel like it's something that, that I've been able to do pretty well. Um, and, and as I've said, it, they've been produced many times so that people seem to respond well to them. Um, from a, a timing perspective, I'm able to write a 10-minute uh, in a matter of a day or possibly two days. Uh, so time-wise, it's uh, easier for me to do during my day job. I work a day job. So, What is uh, your day job? Right now, I am a, a college professor. I teach at Georgia Perimeter College. What do you teach? I teach theater appreciation, and I, uh, I'm currently directing the school play as well. Excellent. And uh, Okay, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah. Um, Okay, difference between writing a 10-minute play and a full-length play. Uh, how high can you reach when you're writing a 10-minute play? Because you've only got 10 minutes to mm-hmm. tell the story of change or irrevocable yes. change. Of, of, of what magnitude? I mean, you've only got 10 minutes. You know, in a full-length sure. play, we sit there for 90 minutes and we watch this whole thing unfold. Oh, yeah, right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, 10 like minutes. The way I like to think about it, sure, absolutely. The way I like to think about a ten-minute play is, um, uh, in in pretty much every ten-minute play I've written, there is one problem, only one problem. Uh, whereas in a full length, you can have subplots and you can have each character has their own uh, issues to work out. Uh, in a ten-minute play, there's typically one problem. Um, often two or maybe three characters are trying to work through that one singular problem, and so um, the development, of course, of the piece is, is trying to get that problem from A to Z uh, in a way that feels, uh, feels complete. And so uh, depending on how complex the problem is, it can be as serious as someone uh, attempting suicide, or it could be as, as silly as trying to figure out what to buy uh, someone for Christmas. Um, so, you know, that, but whatever the problem is, you've got 10 minutes to, you know, establish the problem, set it up, uh, set up the characters and then resolve the problem in 10 minutes. So uh, when it's that focused and that highly, um, you know, uh, pinpointed and, and focused on that one issue, uh, I, I find it it's actually very satisfying to go from, you know, A to Z pretty quickly uh, to resolve that issue. Uh, whereas whenever I've written a full month piece, um, there may only be one main problem, one main uh, super objective. However, 
you can have, like I said, you can have all these subplots, you can have all these different characters who each want their own thing at all built in to, to solving that one main problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, over 300 productions. Again, I'm going to come back to this thing. And we're going to assume, obviously, that you write some really good material. Um, <laughs> otherwise, eh, <laughs> let's, let, let's go with that. But right. apart from that, mm-hmm. how do you get 300 productions? What's your process for getting your work staged? Is I'm, I'm not looking for any kind of great secret, but sure, sure. that's an uh, awful lot of productions. Marketing. You got to market yourself. Uh, I am marketing myself constantly. I've, I've got my website. I've got Twitter. I've got Facebook. Uh, I am constantly looking up theaters that might be interested in my material. Uh, Google is a great help for that. Um, I write them. I say, hey, I've got this play that seems to match what you're, you know, what you've done this past season. Would you be interested in reading it? Uh, I'm also a member of the Dramatist Guild. I'm a member of the official Playwrights of Facebook. I'm a member of uh, Playwrights Binge. And these are all groups that, uh, that share different opportunities, playwriting opportunities. I, I enter pretty much every contest that I feel I qualify for. So I'm just constantly sending work out. Just, uh, and for, every, you know, for the 300 productions I've had, uh, you know, you're talking about 3,000 rejections. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a, definitely a numbers game. You just, you, I get rejected way more often than I get accepted. But uh, I submit so often that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I get picked yeah. up quite a bit. How much yeah. time do you spend doing this? I mean, it seems like between your day job and this, you barely have time to change your socks and get a hamburger. <laughs> it, it's time consuming. Uh, yeah, my, my wife complains a lot that I don't have enough time with her uh, because I, I do. I, I write, I, I submit plays, I work, um, and I do try to spend time with her as much as possible as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's That's kind of important. It is, absolutely. Family yeah. time is important. So uh, it is a challenge. It's not easy. Um, I, I don't uh, I don't sleep as often as I should. That's probably <laughs> part of it. Um, you know, I, I really and I also uh, I tell everybody I do not have a social life. So uh, going out to the theater is my social life. Well, it's also cheaper too. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely. Yes. Well, actually, maybe not theater. It's one of the more expensive forms of entertainment these days. Uh, yeah, it can be unless you're unless you're ushering or unless you're you know, you know working with the theater in some way, then then sometimes you can sneak in. But but go. yeah, I I do uh, I do try to see uh, new plays around the area though. So a lot of times that does cost money. So um, how many theaters you got down? Where are you based? You're in Atlanta. Uh, based just just south of Atlanta. So uh, I would say Atlanta. Uh, I live south of Atlanta, but I go into Atlanta all the time for shows. Okay, and we know Atlanta is a is a really good uh, theater town. So you've got. A lot of stuff to choose from. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, and and quite often I'll have a, uh, several friends with shows going on the same night, and I, I just can't see them all. So you got to pick and choose. That sounds like a uh, problem I wouldn't mind having myself. Actually. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those things you just have to, you know, you apologize. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm I'm seeing this person's show. I can't see yours. You know, mm-hmm. but I'll see your next one. You know. <laughs> 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 cool. Yeah. So you recently um, have yet another success. You've got uh, the best American short plays has picked up one of your plays, two of your plays, uh, two of my plays in uh, yearly succession. So one uh, one was for the 2012 to 13 book. And one was for the 2013 to 14 book. So I was very excited. Uh, according to the editor, uh, William Donastes, he um, 
he said he never does that, but uh, apparently he really liked <laughs> both pieces. So uh, I got I consider myself extremely fortunate that I was in two years in a row. I consider you extremely fortunate. Also, congratulations! That's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and it's, it's just um, I, I was honored to be in the first one. I, I did not expect to get in the second one, but uh, so how does one get their work into the best American short plays? Uh, this was uh, another one where I saw a call for plays. Uh, Mr. Damastes posted on uh, one of the sites that I'm on. I believe it was the official playwrights of Facebook, and uh, he said he was looking for pieces for this. So I submitted uh, the first year, and I got in. Uh, the second year, I asked him if he would accept more pieces, and he, he said he normally does not do two pieces, two, you know, the same playwright two years in a row. Mm -hmm. And I uh, said, "Go ahead and send it anyway." So I, I probably won't do it. And then uh, he he went ahead and accepted it. So excellent. How did you, you know, submit I, it to them before? Uh, not before the 2012 one. No, uh, that was the first year I'd submitted. Uh, so I submitted again, and I got in. This last year, I also submitted another one, but he he decided, you know, look, I've done you two years in a row. I, I can't do you third year. <laughs> they, they'd have to change the title to Dan Guyton's Best American Short Plays. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's, but it's definitely a big honor. I, I'm very honored to be in that series. It's like, tell us about the plays that got in. Sure. Uh, the first one, uh, I was very shocked to get in. Um, it's a uh, dark comedy. It's called The Grim Raper. And it's about the angel of death trying to pick up women the only way he knows how uh, with roofies. So it wow. is a, uh, a shocking piece. I just I got the idea and I went with it and I kind of am shocked at myself at where it went. Um, Why does the term morally repugnant creep in? My head? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, right? Exactly. Um, so I, you know, but it's I, I think it's very funny, but it's very very dark. I mean, very very dark. Uh, especially in this uh, age of, you know, Bill Cosby allegations oh and all that yes, stuff. Yes, so. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you seem to specialize in extremely touchy subjects, sir. I, I am drawn to them. I That's what I like to watch. Those are uh, the movies I enjoy watching. Those are the shows I enjoy watching. The theater I enjoy going to see are, are the ones that sort of push the edge. So What's the I, funniest you, movie you've seen? Funniest movie I've seen? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, Going back, actually, I, I still think uh, There's Something About Mary is one of my all-time favorites, um, that one. And, and also, and, and I cannot get away from uh, Strange Love. Dr. Strange Love is, ah, is also go. on my, my top five list. Mm. So. You mentioned the first one, and all of a sudden I thought of zippers, and I just couldn't even breathe for a second. <laughs> yes, yes great. Dr. Strange Love is one of mm -hmm. my all-time, like yours, oh, uh, absolutely yeah. um favorite movies if every it's it never gets old and oh, no. i've seen it a dozen times it's yeah like, other than that it's and great. it's still relevant too which is oh yeah oh yeah kind of scary and and in itself a, a condemnation of some of our societies so Absolutely. Absolutely. uh where does this this sense of subject come from why do you lean towards the 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 dark and the risky um you know yeah, I'm not sure why. I, I think when I first started writing, uh, in my head, somehow I thought I had to make a name for myself. And I thought, you know, be, doing the shocking thing would be what made my name. Um, and funny enough, my biggest successes have been uh, the, the more tame stuff. Uh, so I, I have uh, tamed myself down a bit as I've gotten older. Uh, but I, I still like to write the edgy stuff sometimes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it, it was, uh, you know, originally it was like, oh, this is how I'm going to get my name out there is by being shocking and, you know, getting mm. attention. Uh, you know, I was a big fan of John Waters, John Waters movies, sure, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, so I, I kind of thought that was 
how to do it. And, um, you know, like I said, as I've gotten older, I've just sort of uh, calmed myself down a bit and I've, I've tamed myself. I've written a lot of uh, children's plays recently and uh, more family-friendly fare. And, uh, and those actually get produced a lot more often. So uh, so now I, I try to do like one of those uh, one for me, one for them, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> write well, one play where that I personally would enjoy and then one that I think other people will enjoy. There's, there's a great market for... Uh for children's plays yeah sure oh i don't think i told you this um yesterday i got a um a contract from pioneer drama services for one of my children's plays excellent wonderful yes. again congratulations that's great yeah that's what that's a company i've not worked with before it's uh, very excited they're huge they're a big market so very excited to work with them i, I can see my listeners out there writing your name down and like starting a cult over this <laughs> this is uh this is this is great um awesome so let's let's skip uh, to the side here for a little bit. Um, let's ask let's ask one of the typical questions. Why did you even begin writing plays? I mean, how did that? Uh, you know, some people write poetry, some people write short stories, other people write biographies, and you know, yeah. whatever that sort of thing. How did you get into doing dialogue and stage sure, directions? Sure. This is actually a, a pretty funny story. I uh, when I was younger. Uh, I started writing my first short story I ever wrote was in uh, second grade, uh, and it was uh, a, a pretty dark story, uh, but I remember my teacher really liking it, and she gave me a lot of praise, and that gave me confidence to keep writing. And so I just wrote. I wrote a lot uh, throughout my uh, young adolescence. It was not plays. It was all poems, short stories. I, re- I used to write cartoons about my teachers, uh, you know, just, and a lot of it was very funny. I was a big fan of Weird Al Yankovic growing up and Mad mm. Magazine. Oh, so, yeah. I grew up yeah. in Mad Magazine, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, it's great. Uh, you know, so I used to imita- uh, imitate uh, Mad Magazine and Weird Al, and I would, you know, I'm talking, you know, middle school. Sure, and so yeah. I would be, uh, you know, imitating what I thought was funny from those, uh, those subjects. And um, I remember... Um, in eighth grade, and I was a very shy kid. I would sit there writing, but I didn't actually uh, talk out loud to people because I was very shy and mumbled a lot. I had a speech impediment. And so um, I remember in eighth grade, I wrote a, a poem. I actually wrote two poems that my teacher loved, and he put it into the school literary magazine, and I won an award for both of them. And the award was to get up and speak the poem, sort of like a poetry slam, in front of an entire audience. And I was so nervous. I'd never done anything like that before. It was, it was terrifying. Uh, but I, I got up. I, I read it. I, I, and I remember laughing at it. And I, was, I was coached, though. And, and the, one of the teachers said, it's going to be a lot funnier if you don't laugh. If you say it dead serious, you're going to get a lot more laughs. So I said, OK. And so that night when I performed it in front of the audience, I did it dead serious. And they laughed really, really hard. And when you're an eighth grader who's shy, doesn't have a lot of friends, and you get that kind of reception, uh, it, it changed my life. And I was like, I want to do this. I want to perform. I want to get in front of an audience and make them laugh like this all the time. And so that was uh, where I started doing I started writing poetry slams. They were very funny poems. And I started doing that for the first couple of years. And then my senior year in high school, I got into acting. And uh, that really opened me up and got me out of my shell. And they got to help me uh, with my speech impediment. I actually, you know, was able to uh, pronunciate my words properly and, and, and you know, speak and, and, and uh, talk from my diaphragm and all that. And so my confidence level rose, like, immensely. Uh, so in college, my original goal was just to go to be a writer and be like a, a, a story writer, short stories and novels and all that. 
But I fell in love with theater and I started doing theater classes and I started doing acting and I started doing that. And I, I just at some point, I think in my sophomore year, I said, why don't I combine the two? And I started writing uh, monologues and plays for myself to perform in. And that's where it started. And then uh, before long, it was actually more fun watching other people perform it. And, and that, that became more fun for me. So that's that, that's kind of where it all started was, uh, you know, it's kind of a long journey, but um, but it's been in a. It feels like it was meant to be. Well, that's uh, that's that's the sign that you've landed exactly where you should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels natural, and you you fit into your slot into the into the universe. <laughs> I uh, think so. I hope so. Yeah, I feel yeah. I feel like I have. One one of the things you said struck a chord. Um, when I was a kid, I also had uh, speech impediments. I had uh, first of all, I had a <laughs> crazy lisp. Mm. Right? And but I also it was accompanied by a uh, nonstop stutter. Ah, yeah. Which uh, mm-hmm. made speaking extremely difficult and yeah. my social life hell. Sure, uh, sure. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. How did you overcome yours? Uh, like I said, it was it was uh, it was not even until my senior year in high school. It was uh, it was acting classes, and it was uh, uh, the the experience in eighth grade made me want to be outgoing, made me want to get on stage, made me want to perform. But even then, I was still very shy. So in high school, those acting classes and the enunciation lessons and, and speaking from the diaphragm and all of that just really helped me focus and helped me uh, hone my ability to perform in front of an audience. And so, uh, so that, that's kind of, um, yeah, for me, I, I would say any child with a speech impediment or anything, I would say uh, definitely sign them up for acting classes. I, I, it helped me immensely. That's an interesting thing. That that was not a possibility when I was going through uh, grade school, which yeah. I think was around the time of Paul Revere. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I went through the therapy and I went through the holding the mirror in front of me. And I, yeah. I, I think I found my way out of it, oddly enough, mm-hmm. by becoming the class clown. Ah, yeah. See, a similar story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You went through acting class and I spent my time shooting verbal barbs at mm-hmm. my fellow students, at the yeah. teachers, uh, yep. saying anything, and we go back to something else you were just talking about, getting people to laugh. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a big, isn't, that was a big thing for me. Is, isn't that just one of the most remarkable mm-hmm. emotional things you can go through to just have people crack up? Yes, at whatever yes, it is you're, absolutely. You know, yeah. Absolutely, I mean, it, it's a, and, and, and I remember, um, the experience when I was, uh, like I said, even as, as an eighth grader doing this, I, I had to pause for laughter. And I remember sitting there for, for it was just a couple seconds, but I, I remember thinking, they are laughing at what I am doing. This is so cool. Like, it, you know, I, it was just so surreal because, you know, uh, being a, a relative wallflower most of my life up until that point, um, it, it, you know, it was eye opening for me. I, I had not uh, experienced that really before. So it was really cool. Have you become more gregarious, more outgoing? Uh, I think so. Uh, I mean, I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm still not a social butterfly. As I said, I, I do not have a, a, a very active social life. But when I am in front of people, uh, for example, I'm a teacher. Uh, I think I'm a pretty uh, fun teacher. I, I like to crack jokes and stuff like that. And uh, I do like to keep the uh, classroom entertained. Um, and, and I'm able to get on stage very easily, very comfortably now, which is, uh, you know, for for years, I even as much as I enjoyed acting, I had terrible stage fright. Uh, but um, I, I rarely ever get uh, that kind of a debilitating stage fright like I used to get anymore. Well, 
somebody who actually had stage fright or anybody who has stage fright, the choice of teaching a class is um, not the most, the, the first thing you'd think of, you know, for someone sure, with sure. that. So let's talk about teaching for a second. You teach theater yeah. appreciation at the college level. Yes. Um, and as any good writer, any good playwright has to, has to know, you have to learn more about human nature. So mm-hmm. how does this position, how does this job, how do, your, how do your students, what do they teach you about human nature? You know, uh, it, it's fun uh, because as a theater appreciation teacher, of course, I appreciate theater. I, I you know, went through classes and uh, I've been a fan of theater for close to 20 years now. And uh, so for, for me, uh, it's a natural thing. But uh, trying to convince others, uh, and these are mostly non-theater majors, these are you know, math majors and business majors, and they're just doing this for the humanities credit. And so trying to convince them why theater is relevant and important, uh, it, it takes a, a different mindset. I've got to put on a different hat. I've got to kind of see the world through their eyes and try to um, use their uh, potential lack of interest as a way of trying to like turn it around. And so I've got to kind of look at it from their eyes. I've got to approach the material as though I didn't know the stuff, so I can really, um, you know, sell it to them and convince them this is this is good stuff. And uh, hopefully, I'm doing a good job. They seem to respond well. So um, that's uh, that. It, it is definitely an interesting experience teaching the material versus learning it, because you have to learn it all over again in a way to teach it. Do your students ever show up in your work? You know, that's a. Um, Yes, I, I've written a few uh, plays where, especially if I'm writing about younger people. Uh, right now, uh, like I said, I've written a few children's plays, and uh, there are children in those plays, and some of them are definitely uh, representative of, of children I've actually worked with. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> they do sometimes. Uh, you know, very disguised. I do not want any of them to recognize themselves, per se, but, uh, but yeah, there's their characteristics are there. Cool. Uh, you mentioned you spend a lot of time going to see theater, and that's one of the best things that any playwright can do. Uh, and I've got two questions that are going to piggyback off of this. And the first one is, what's the best thing or the best lesson you've learned from going to see theater? Yeah, uh, funny enough, um, I, I have learned more from the bad plays I've seen than from the good plays in some cases. Uh, there, there's something about seeing a play that, that doesn't work that in my brain, my brain immediately goes, what could be done to fix this? And so when I'm writing a play that even may remotely be similar to what that is, it's like immediately, okay, fix all the errors and don't make those same mistakes that I saw there. Can you give Uh, me an example? Um, Without yes. naming names that we know, we don't want to. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I developed my uh, real love for theater in, in college. Primarily, I saw a lot of shows in college, and I remember seeing a show that uh, it was it was just extremely preachy. It was covering a social um, topic. I, I thinking back, I think it was uh, I think it was actually a date rape subject, uh, but it was very preachy, um, and I remember thinking. Nobody talks this way. Nobody like if this were a real scenario, you know, there's all, you know, all levels of subtext that would be there. People would not be openly talking about how they feel about this issue. They'd be covering it up. They'd be masking their feelings, trying to pretend like they're not upset, but they really they are upset. Uh, and, and so I remember thinking these people are talking way too much. They're, they're telling way too much of the version. And, you know, and I was 22 when I saw that, I think. But I remember, um, you know, it really had an impact on me. 
Uh, and so uh, I was writing a play at the time about, um, about uh, teen pregnancy. And I remember distinctly, I, I did not want to preach. Uh, it was a social topic similar to the other one, but I did not want to preach. I did not want to beat anyone over the head. Uh, it was very important to me that these characters um, talked around the subject and avoided talking about it, even though you knew it was on their mind. And so, you know, finding the subtext there rather than the actual uh, in-your-face dialogue. And, and so that was an example of a, a bad play. In my mind, it was a bad play that uh, taught me a great deal about uh, what I need to do to make my play better. So, cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then I've seen plays that work wonderfully and brilliantly. Uh, for me, um, plays that say less are, are almost always more powerful to me. So um, I've seen plays that, that cover a wide gamut of emotions in, in very few words, and, and I just, I'm blown away by those. And, and that that's taught me that I could be sparser in some of my language as well. Uh, do you tend to be wordy? Um, actually, not not so much. Um, you know, in, in my writing, I, I tend to write... The, the biggest criticism I tend to get in my first drafts is that it's, there's not enough there, and it's maybe not as clear as it should be. So my first drafts are almost always not enough. I have to add more in to make it clearer what I'm going for. Um, so for me, there is always this, this immediate editor in my brain cutting back at the language. So for me, it's a, they tend to be, if anything, I tend to go too sparse more than, than too wordy. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause my other question, one of my other questions is going to be, what's the difference between your first draft and the finished product? But I think you just answered that. Yeah. Yeah. First draft, uh, in my plays typically, um, I know a lot of writers will write everything and then go back with the red pen and cut out me. I tend to uh, cut out before it's even there. And then people will say, well, I don't understand. What does that mean? And then I go, ah, okay, well, let me add this in and I'll add a sentence or two. And they're like, Oh, now I get it. You know? So it's kind of like, um, I, I try to, to not do too much with the, for the audience. I try not to spell anything out for the audience. And sometimes it's too vague. And so that's my first draft is, is they tend to be too vague and I have to go back in and explain things a little bit more. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, so what else in theater do you do? I think you mentioned earlier that you were directing. Yeah, uh, uh, directing the, the school the, play. The for school play. Uh, which, uh, which play is that? Sure. Uh, we just uh, we, we're closing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof this weekend, actually. Uh -huh. Uh, Tennessee Williams classic. So that's a, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's a hard play. It's a really hard play, uh, especially for college students, but they're, they're doing a great job with it. And, uh, we're closing this weekend and I'm, I'm really proud of them. They did a great job with it. What was your biggest challenge doing this? Um, biggest challenge, I think working with a bunch of 18, 19 year olds who are playing 65 year old, uh, you know, big daddy and big mama. Those are the hardest roles. I think, uh, they could, Mostly relate to Brick and Maggie. You know, they're only a few years older than these these actors. But uh, Big Daddy, who's uh, dying of cancer, uh, for an 18 year old kid to play that role is it's a challenge. Um, and there's a lot of language. He's Big Daddy rambles a lot. So trying to get um, you know an 18 year old kid who's who's kind of you know active and energetic, trying to get him to a be 65, feel the pain of a 65 year old man who's how do you do that? Dying. Um, luckily the actor who's playing him is very talented character actor. And so he came in with a voice and a walk for this character right away. So it's like he was, uh, 
almost like imitating his grandfather, I think. And he kind of came in with that. So, you know, of course, the challenge then is making it realistic and not a caricature. Uh, so that's been the challenge with him. But but the biggest challenge for this particular actor is um, Big Daddy's dialogue is so verbose and he repeats a lot of things and he says things just slightly different each time. And so so getting this actor to realize, OK, when you say it this time, it has to be different than when you say the exact same thing the next sentence, because each time he's adding a new nuance to it. And so that's, um, you know, working with with the student to try to get him to, to say each sentence with a new form of nuance and and even though he's saying the exact same thing three or four times in some cases he's got to say it differently each time mm. and so that that's been the challenge we've been but uh but luckily he's a very talented actor and he's been uh, he's been doing really well i'm really proud of him cool how does directing yeah. a play affect your writing <clears throat> a play oh yeah, perfect question um it's uh it definitely shapes um you know when i'm writing uh, of course the the one thing I, you know, first thing is, okay, the, the character has to make sense, the, the dialogue, the story has to make sense. But as a director, I'd go, man, why the hell did this writer put in, you know, we have to have uh, this set design or this thing, or this is so impossible to do this. And I'm so frustrated with the writer for putting this in. And, you know, so now as a writer, I, you know, try to only put in set pieces that I think would be really fun for a set designer to make or, uh, or, or uh, try to put in action in the play that I think would be really fun for a director to, to put together. Um, I, I am very conscious of any, anything that I ask my actors or directors or set designers to do in my plays. I'm very conscious of what I personally enjoy putting on this production. Uh, and if, if there's anything in there that I think, man, I wouldn't want to do that, then I, I make sure not to uh, require a director or actor or set designer to do that. So that it does definitely shape my uh, what I'm willing to put other people through. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you would encourage uh, playwrights to get into other aspects of theater, especially directing. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, having uh, any other aspect uh, uh, on stage is is helpful because, you know, if you're writing a piece and and it's important to you that um, you know this actor uh, is you know in this scene in this costume and then in the next scene and less than a second later in another costume, you know that is a, a major challenge for the costume designer to to switch costumes and everything. And it may be doable. It may be fun. You may have a good idea of how to make that work. But um, if you're if you're going to require that of them, you have to kind of have an idea as the writer how that's going to be physically possible. Um, and so I've seen many young writers, you know, write almost in a cinematic style where they expect the actor to go from one scene to the next in a mm -hmm. matter of seconds and, and completely transform in some way that's almost physically impossible. Uh, and I, I just, I find, I, I don't think it's always impossible. There's always creative solutions to every problem. And, and I'm, uh, I admire uh, costume designers and set designers and directors who are able to come up with creative solutions to these challenging plays. Uh, but, but, you know, as, like I said, as a writer for myself, I try to, uh, if I'm going to put in a challenge, I want to make sure it's a fun challenge. I want to make sure it's a challenge they will enjoy undertaking. I had a student a while back in one of my beginning playwriting courses who was doing exactly what you're talking about, writing the same character, going from one scene to the next, different yeah. clothes, different, yeah, it's, it would have been the most hellacious quick changes you've ever seen. <laughs> and I, br yeah. I brought this up to him and he basically looked at me and he said, 
Well, they can handle that in tech. That's what the stage manager's for. <laughs> yeah, and, and many playwrights feel that way. It's true. And um, I, I thought, let me bring him into my rehearsal space and have him repeat this. I would just love to see the looks on people's faces. I know, no kidding, right? No kidding. Uh, you know, and another thing, too, that, that bothers me, and, and I've noticed this specifically in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I love Tennessee Williams, brilliant writer, of course, uh, but he has characters in there that have like one or two lines, and then they're gone the rest of the whole, the whole rest of the show. And, uh, you know, the, the characters of the servants, particularly. And uh, as a writer, I, I just find that so uh, shocking. I would never do that to an actor. Just that one drives time. me nuts. It does. It drives you crazy. And, and you know, you'd think Tennessee Williams would know better. But, and, you know, it's still a beautiful play. I, I get it. But, you know, it's the sort of thing where, uh, as a writer, I would never do that to an actor. Make no. him be the whole yeah. show just for one line. I just... So I, I feel bad as a director making them do it. So I try to give them some other things they can do backstage. And some of them are helping with costumes and stuff like that. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's that's still just a, wrong. That, that's that's really <laughs> unless, you know, yeah. it's, it's like the Alanis Morissette bit in Dogma where she comes in at the end. You know, well, yeah, there's, God, there's a really funny, you know, reason for it. And that's one thing. But right. Right. Okay, yeah, I, I really struggle with that. <laughs> Couple of, a couple of really quick questions, then I'll let you get back to submitting your next 43 prize winners. Um, got a favorite playwright? Uh, I do. Harold Pinter is my all-time favorite. Okay. Wh- why? Yep. Um, th- there's something about the sparseness of his language that just really uh, set me off and really got me excited, and I just I loved it. Um, I He was my – I was getting my master's in, in theater, and he was my uh, my thesis project was to write about Harold Pinter. And I just immediately fell in love with his dialogue. There was just something so rich and meaningful about the way he can say a million things in, in a silence. Uh, you know, there, there's so much there in just him not – you know, a character not saying a word. Right. Uh, or, or the character will say one word, and it just means everything. Uh, and there's, there's just something really, really stirring about that, and I, I just I'm fascinated by his work. Ever direct Pinter? I have. Uh, I directed a, a scene from The Hot House, which uh, was was great fun. Uh, I want to direct a full length uh, of his, but uh, this was a class project. I directed a scene from it, and we just had a ball. It was great. Cool. All right. Uh, last question. Yeah. And then I'll let you go. Uh, Death of a Snowman, you are, as I read, you are producing an animated version of your play, Death of a Snowman. Tell us yes, about I... the play and sure. what's involved it in producing this. Uh, it's, a, it's been a challenge. Uh, it is a 10-minute piece, so it's a short piece, and it's, uh, it's, it's family-friendly. It's one of my family-friendly pieces. And it's a, uh, I usually, it usually gets done a lot around the holidays. It is a snowman and a little girl, and they are discussing the afterlife um, because... The snowman's about to die, and uh, this little girl has recently lost her mother, and so she's trying to understand what death is, and so she's doing so by conversing with the snowman, and so that's what the piece is. It's a very sweet little, kind of sad, kind of funny, charming little uh, piece about about death, basically, uh, and this little girl trying to understand it, and so that's what the piece is, and uh, ever since I've written it, I, I always thought it would be kind of fun as an animated short. And, uh, you know, you see these animated shorts at the Academy Awards and all these, you know, and of course, it's always been in my back of my head. Maybe I could, you know, submit this for the Academy Award or something like that. Who knows? But hmm. anyway, um, so who's animating I, it and what kind of animation? 
Sure. It is a friend of mine. Her name is uh, Lisa Marie Erickson, and she is uh, an animation student. Uh, or actually, she's uh, now graduated. And she uh, is, is brilliant at doing 3D animation, kind of like the, the Pixar stuff. Uh, you know, much smaller budget than Pixar, but uh, <laughs> much smaller budget. I think the Department of Defense has a smaller budget than Pixar. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. So she's doing it in, uh, in this 3D animation style, and it's um, it's just really I'm, – I'm so amazed with the work she's doing. And um, the, the fun part was I, I got to go in the recording studio, and I, I did the voice of the snowman. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter plays the young girl. And uh, we got to record that about uh, about a month ago, and uh, it was just it was a lot of fun uh, acting in it, uh, you know, virtually acting in it, mm. and uh, and the animation is slowly but surely coming together. So I'm I'm excited. It's probably going to take another another five or six months before it's done. You know, it's just a ten minute piece, but it's still uh, there's a lot of work that goes into the animation, of course. I'm sure but, it's got to uh, be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is uh, this is a project I have been saving up for a long time. I wrote the play back in 2009, and so for the last six years I've been kind of wanting to do this, and so I've been saving up the money, saving up the money, and uh, we finally got enough money saved up, and we're going ahead with it. So it's it's a self-produced project, uh, but it's something that I'm I'm very proud of and excited about. Excellent. Best yeah. of luck to you with this thing. I'm sure Thanks. it's going to be wonderful. Let us know when it comes out, and we'll uh, we'll put we'll mention it for you. Wonderful. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll be happy to, please. Cool. Dan Guyton, it's been uh, a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for stopping by. And um, I say good luck. I would say good luck with your future stuff, but I really honestly don't think you need that. Um, You're sweet. Thank you, George. I appreciate that. (laughs) Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly, and our podcast can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest, or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know someone who'd make good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro music is Doomsday Travelogue, and the outro is Surf Good, Surf Fast, both by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Thanks to everybody once again, and happy theatering to all of you.